Hello and assalamu alaikum everyone. Thank you so much for uh, coming back in for part two of my discussion with Dr. Shazia Sadaf. Uh, we had a great discussion in part one, so I'd encourage you to uh, take a look at that as well. This week, we're just going to continue our discussion where we left off. Uh, we were talking about the modern Pakistani installments in, in the speculative fiction genre, which I'm really excited about. I really would like to read more on that because I feel like there's such a lack in that area, at least for from Pakistani authors. And Dr. Sadaf was also telling me about the publication that will be coming out where she analyzes these new pieces of literature, and it will be released in the spring of 2023. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, maybe we could just talk a little, bit, a little bit about the kind of movement that there seems to be towards a, you mentioned that it was a re-orientalism or a lack mm -hmm. or a counter-orientalism uh, in Pakistani yeah. literature. So yeah, we, if anybody has read Edward Said's Orientalism, then you know what I'm talking about. It's all about the kind of image that the colonizers had about non-Western world that they called the Orient. And the Orient included at that time when they called it Orient, like you could go back to Shelley and Keats and read about the Orient and how they exoticized it. And so at that time, it, it could have been the middle, anything, Middle East, South Asia, everything was the same to them. Yeah. And uh, again, if any anyone has read Foucault's, you know, knowledge and power would know something about knowledge creation. So knowledge creation depends on who owns the language in which information is being set out, who publishes it, who has control over that. The control over that kind of knowledge and publication has always been the Western world and the predominant language in which that has been done is English. So I'll give you a small example. If somebody writes something in my mother tongue, Pashto, how many readers will it have? Very limited. And not only because they don't speak my language, but because there's uh, not enough publication houses there. Like literally, how you can count on your fingers how many publishing companies there are in Pakistan. There was Feroz Sons at one point, and it's like... Urdu, okay, you can still count a few on your fingertips, but English, there are very few. Um, there were a few that were started in the last two, three, five years, but they closed down because there's. it's like from a financial perspective, they're not very, they're not like money-making machines. So, so that for us to be heard, we have to take the English language and um, use it to what we call write back. And that writing back started from Pakistan, mostly in the 9-11 period, post 9-11 period. So post 9-11, we saw all of these great writers literally write back. So Mohsen Ham is the reluctant fundamentalist being one of them. Uh, Kamila Shamsi and her books and almost all of them, because I have written on so most of my published articles are on these works, post 9-11 works. And so was my dissertation for my second PhD. So they wrote back and they're mostly about the war on terror. They're mostly about Pakistani identities and the renegotiation of those identities in the post 9-11 period. So that happened in the post 9-11 period, but more recently, in the last five years or so, very many young authors have shifted from just talking about 9-11 and war on terror because it seems like they're like harping on and on about it. They've just shifted to speculative fiction. And instead of looking back on 9-11 and what happened and kind of looking at identities, they're now looking forward to, you know, the future. So, um, so they are trying to write about the future from their own perspective. It could be an Islamic perspective. It could just be a Pakistani perspective. It could be from any angle that's non-Western. So they they're moving away from what was called Orientalism. Orientalism was the power to define somebody that lay with the Western world because they wrote all the books. For example, the only book that you can even get today about the Pathans was written by a British officer. It was written by Sir Olaf Caro in the late 1800s. And if you want to know about the Pathans, 
you'll know it through that British book, um, which is so right. sad. There is there is no grammar book written on Pashto. There's the the grammar books on Urdu were written by British linguists. Um, right. So it's it's like you know who creates, who publishes, who creates. So the knowledge about us was always created by the West because they had the power. Not that we were not writing or we were not intelligent or we didn't have writers, but those are writers in local languages. Spreading that information out into the world is more difficult. So unless somebody does extensive translations, and then so much is lost in translation because you translate into English again, you're giving power to English to fill exactly. in the gaps of that. Yeah. So from local languages into English, you lose a lot. So now what Pakistani authors are doing is they're taking English so that there's nothing lost in translation. And they're kind of saying, take this, you know, this is how we feel about the future. It's in your language. We are publishing through your publication houses. Now hear us. And does that allow us to express to the full extent what we feel and, and our true sentiments? Or will something inevitably be lost because we're forcing ourselves into the English funnel? That's an interesting question. That's an interesting question. We are, as far as writing in English and losing something is concerned, we are not losing anything because it's not translation, but because the, the people who are writing are obviously good at English. But that has a caveat. The caveat is that the only people who are representing the future of Pakistan, however interesting it may be and however important it may be, is the elite class of Pakistan. Yeah. Because they are the ones who can speak English. So if you ask somebody out on the street and they're everybody's in, there's no lack of intelligence in Pakistan. But if you ask anybody on the street, they have very important viewpoints. Like just look at how people, how knowledgeable people are about politics in the streets of Pakistan. You ask uh, an ordinary Canadian about politics and not everyone is interested in politics. Mm -hmm. In Pakistan, ask anyone on the street about politics and what's happening and everybody has an opinion. They're intelligent people. You can ask them about the future and they'd say something to you. You can ask them you know, to tell a story and they'll be brilliant at telling stories. But what they cannot do is write in English and have it reach out to the rest of the world. So there's, yeah, we are conveying Pakistani ideas through the elite who can speak English, and they're doing a pretty good job of it. But I cannot say that they're full representatives of what Pakistan wants to say. Yeah. Um, but it's still better than nothing. And they are being heard because they are winning the awards. That's true. So they're being read. They're being read and they're being recognized. And one other thing that the book that we are writing is doing is this will go into courses in the West and in Pakistan. For Pakistanis, for the first time, they're going to see academic books that are talking about something that has very recently emerged. They're not having to wait for 20 or 30 years for somebody to write a book about something that's coming out of Pakistan. We've mm -hmm. literally included stories and books that have come out in the last two months. So it's very new. And it's going to this book is going to be read because it's a research monograph. It's going to be read by students in the West. So it's so it's important to maintain recency to avoid that almost tendency to colonize that yeah. literature once again. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> we talk I, about our totally own agree. work before anybody else does. Yeah. So as Pakistani academics, I want to be the first one to write about the work that's coming out from Pakistan and say what Pakistanis have to say, then allow, not allow, then then have a Western scholar decipher what Pakistanis are wanting to say. Right. Well, that whole thing with Rumi ha happened, which this is yeah. what it reminds me of. Was it Roland, what was his name? Roland Parks, I think? Yeah, who writes uh, about... The, the only translator of Rumi and yeah. he's just under like it's the same with fire uh, it, because of it yeah. yeah but it's the same with the uh, you know alif lala the right. arabian nights it's the the way that it has come to the west is through burton's translation 
And that Burton translation is the authoritative translation of Usman Malik as a speculative writer is doing a lot to bring the Alif Layla into currency again by in his stories taking portions of that and using it, modernizing them into new Pakistan and making people interested in those stories again. That's that's very cool. I got a lot from what you were saying that speculative fiction uh, in, in Pakistani writers in recent times, there's a lot of attitude of this is not how I want to be identified and this is not how I want to be expressed. It's very protestive. I think you, that's the word you used. And to me, that really does reflect the sentiment of uh, a lot of the immigrant community, especially the Desi immigrant community, is I don't want to be tied to this image. I don't want to be tied to this specific, narrow, single faceted view that you have on this place. Here, I'm yeah. a living, breathing example that that view is completely incorrect and inaccurate. And so yeah. I feel like uh, immigrants here, especially students and even just general public really will really benefit from that because they'll see that same attitude being reflected. Um, and it's unfortunate that they don't, they aren't exposed to that literature as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but but of course your work will will be able to change that. So so that's yeah. good. One other thing is that a lot of students who come here, and the mentality in Pakistan is such that if they're sending their children abroad for studies, if they're not immigrants and they're international students and they're spending all that money and it is a lot of money, then the students they want their children to go into computer sciences or engineering or, you know, some such field instead of coming and doing English literature. So the exposure to this kind of idea comes from social sciences and literature more than in sciences. Um, so yeah, that's that's one thing. How, how are Pakistani students who are coming here, how to make them aware of the work that academics are doing in projecting a Pakistani voice? Right. Okay, that's um, that's fascinating. That's the source of this need for for Pakistanis to or just Desis to go into things like engineering and the sciences. I didn't think that that was a reason for it, but it sounds like it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and 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 the one good thing here is that you can do electives and choose to do electives where you get exposure to things like this. Sure. Um, so if you're like a science student, like you know, they should go and do electives where there's you know some discussion of this kind of a thing to to kind of open up their minds to stuff. I I just want to mention one thing: the the use of the word desi because that is con contentious as well, because um, the use of the word desi as uh, there's there's a a lot of scholarly attention to the word desi because desi was kind of pejorative so desi is for brown south asian and it comes obviously from desh which is country but it it was associated more it, i'm saying was because now there's a shift that's coming it was associated with being like a country bumpkin kind of a thing like you know you come here and you know if you're still having your achar and if you're still making your dal in your student digs or whatever you're a desi and or you don't speak english well enough or you're not wearing clothes that you should be wearing or your choice and you are you're a desi so that that idea and then there was a pushback from scholars about this word desi that it's a very monolithic that it doesn't account for like a difference between indian and pakistani or sri lankan or bangladeshi as like you know they're different they're not all like clumped together as curry eating you know brown skin people yep. Or desis, or you know, then also the terminology of um, A B C D, which is very pejorative. It was um, was American born confused desis. A B C D stands for American born confused desis, and that was also that was like you know a scholarly academic look into this terminology, and that was used for people who came in and then didn't know how to adapt or assimilate in a culture here. They were called 
ABCDs. But now, more recently, there's been a pushback and there's, and this pushback is in academia. It's like they're reclaiming the word Desi and uh, yeah, they're saying we're proud of, you know, this Desi identity and it's kind of a unifying thing rather than separating us into groups of like Indians and Pakistanis. So, so there, there's mm. also like linguistic waves like this where you understand certain words in, in certain ways. But I just want to make sure that whoever is listening does not use the word Desi without understanding the various contentions around the word Desi that's going on right now. It is so important to understand. And I did have a conscious kind of deliberacy behind my use of that word. And part of it was the whole point of this podcast is to make ourselves feel like we are represented in on our own terms, not yeah. in someone yeah. else's, and to feel united even yeah. uh, in in any way that we can and to me like that was what Desi was like I just feel like we need a word that we can call ourselves because mm -hmm. the British and and colonization has led to other people giving us words that they use for us and then we end up using them but which might which is of course yes the history of Desi might allude to that as well but I feel like now I don't just from my knowledge it's such a an insular word and uh, a word that we can kind of identify ourselves with comfortably without double thinking like oh where did this come from and I'm not really comfortable with that it's something that really has a lot of encompassing purity in it almost maybe it's that's, that's the impression we, I yeah it's up to us how we redefine Desi because that's exactly what I'm doing right now I'm in the mm. absolute last stages of writing the introduction for the book before sending it to the publishers and in the introduction, we try and clarify some of the ways in which we use the word terminology. And we've been thinking about how to clarify our use of the word Desi in the book. So kind of uh, we're defining what Desi means within the context of the book as we see the word Desi. It's very much like we've been defined like in the UK, Pakistanis are Pakis. And that's a, yeah. that's a negative. That word has a negative connotation until we go and do something about like, you know, go and say, yes, we are Pakis and proud of it and change it in some way you know right. until then right. Paki is the word that defines us without our wish or will you know very interesting yeah I'd, I'd like to, to read more on that for sure um, maybe we could go a little bit into the uh, the Journal of Postcolonial Writing, which you uh, yeah. work on pretty heavily. I'd like to know, I'm curious, what kinds of issues are, are prominently featured there? What do you see in the authors that bring their work to that journal? And also, what uh, what does your work involve there? Yeah, so um, Journal of Postcolonial Writing is one of the top journals in postcolonial literature, um, the other one being Interventions. So these are the top two journals. Both of them are Taylor and Francis journals from the UK, like it's a so overarching Routledge and then Taylor and Francis. This is one of the top journals. And when I was in during my career, I had always before I had a lot of publications, I always thought, oh, my God, if I can get only one article published in the Journal of Postcolonial Writing, that'd be so great. Never thinking that at one point I'd be one of the associate editors. So a lot of important papers come out in the Journal of Postcolonial Writing from previously colonized countries. And it has become the voice of academics who are looking at exactly the kinds of things that I'm talking about, but not just from South Asia, from Africa, from China, from Hong Kong, from like, you know, from North America, all of the previously colonized nations so but the journal talks tries to analyze the writings coming from that region uh so in that sense academically it's very i would say it's very how, how should i put it 
it's authoritative uh, from the academic perspective because it's peer reviewed. So it goes into double blind peer review. So if you send a paper, it goes to two reviewers, top class in that field who don't know your name, who blind review it. And then if both of them agree it's publishable, publishable or publishable with minor changes or not publishable, then it comes back. Um, my role, I'm the associate editor. So there's one editor in chief and then there are three associate editors, three or four max, and they have expertise in different regions. So my expertise is South Asia. So other associate editors are like expertise in African, you know, expertise in Far East, you know. So four associate editors who can who who look after the papers that are submitted. So when the papers are submitted, they are assigned to associate editors who send them for review. The review comes back. They look at the review and then decide whether the paper is publishable or not, or if changes are needed, what kind of changes. They suggest changes. The changes are sent back and the writers make those changes. When it comes back, then the associate editor see if the appropriate changes have been made, make editing, uh, like do editing work, fix the English style, you know. So all of the decisions are up to the associate editors. When the associate editors decide that it's publishable or revisions are done well or, you know, their editorial advice has been taken, then they finalize it and the last sign off is from the chief editor. So it involves a lot of work. And as an associate editor, I'm kind of at the doorway of any kind of new research coming in from the post-colonial field. That's why I took on this position. It's an honorary position. It pays you nothing, but you learn a lot because you are at the doorway of all kinds of research in your field. So you read almost everything that comes in, almost everything new that comes in. And it's you gain so much knowledge because you're reading every article that comes in. You're on top of your game then in such a position. Yeah, that's awesome. Because you're in such a comparative, you're gaining such a comparative perspective of post-colonial writing in general. When you think of specifically South Asian issues, South Asian post-colonial issues present in the writing that you see, are there things that distinguish it from the post-colonial literature of other regions? In other words, is there something unique about it in a fundamental way that the other don't share? Yeah, I do. I do see that what's coming out from Pakistan is focused, not all of it, but there's a very heavy focus on certain issues, some of them being migration. Migration is a very big issue. Migration and identity, diaspora identities is another very big issue very big issue. So when they're looking at writings from writings by Pakistani authors, for example, they're examining them from the perspective of identity, negotiating your identity in a period of migration. For example, Mohsen Hamid's book, Exit West, which is which is like there are these magical portals and you go through the portal and you are in another country without going through a visa or, you know, without. So it imagines a world, again, it's speculative. It imagines a world where you don't have to get a visa, where you're not refused entry. You There are no borders that you have to cross. There's just a portal that appears in your room in Lahore and you or Karachi and you go through it and you're in London. Um, and it's interesting that that's also speculative. So there are scholars who are looking at how these authors are dealing with issues of migration and identity. And another is there's a lot that's focused in feminism, Pakistani feminism, which also focuses on Islamic feminism as a parallel, different way of looking at feminism than Western feminism. Because Western feminism understands 
understands Islam as restrictive, whereas in Islam, women have a lot of rights that the Western world maybe does not know about because they have their view of Islam. And Islamic feminism and the, the freedom that that gives women is a parallel kind of feminism, which a lot of scholars are exploring, you know, through their articles that are being sent to a journal like ours. So yeah, these these are some of the things. But 9-11 was a big focus. War on terror was a big focus a few years ago. Now it's shifting more to migration, identity, Islamic feminism. Yeah, issues like that. Right. So these kind of characterize, they help you set apart the South Asian post-colonial yeah. culture from, from the others. Uh, I like that very much. Um, I feel like the issue of migration and identity, well, first of all, <laughs> Exit West, I feel like, is is every first-generation immigrant's uh, fantasy. I feel like yeah. so many duas have been made to make that <laughs> a reality. Uh, and, and yeah, I feel like that's that was maybe even the, the point of the book, right, is to show this this utopic view, but also show its complications. Uh, it, was, it was a very cool book. Yeah, uh, there's a, the more recent book by uh, Mohsen Hamid, which is The Last White Man, I don't know if you've read it, is a, a twist on capitalism. Kafka's metamorphosis, where in Kafka's story, there's a there's a guy who wakes up in the morning and finds out that he's turned into an insect, and he doesn't know what to do with that. Like, you know, his identity has changed, and he has to negotiate being an insect now. Whereas in The Last White Man, there's a white man who wakes up one morning and finds out that his skin is brown. So he has to, now he has lost his white privilege, and it's not just him. He finds out that the whole city where he's living is slowly, everyone is turning brown in a staggered way so he's the first one and then everyone staggered at different points in time starts turning brown and it's all about race and that is also a speculative book because the speculative writing is all about what if what if white people wake up in the morning and they're brown what will they do so that's another that's what i'm telling you the turn is all towards speculative fiction in the last few years even the major writers are turning to speculative writing because there's so much in speculation, because it's all about what if this happens, then what? What if that, what if there's a portal and you can go without wanting to get a visa? What if white people wake up one morning and they're brown like us? What if this happens or what if that happens? And that's all very interesting because that's what Pakistani writers are doing. And they're doing it better and better every year, winning more and more awards every year. Okay. And it speaks to so many, yeah, like, fantasies, wishes, ideas that we just play around with, but are not necessarily adventurous enough to explore. And we think, oh, it's just whatever. That's just fantasy. We'll yeah. like that. But you actually see it. And I feel like so much uh, knowledge about your own identity comes out from exploring those questions. Yeah. Uh, in the Just in the process of asking what if and then why, why this, why this, like uh, that whole process yeah. in itself, knowledge building. Like you said, when you're sitting on your own, the thought might enter your mind, but then you think, oh my God, no, I have to now go and get a coffee. So the thought slips out of your mind. But when you're reading a book, for the duration of time that you're reading a book, you're forced to think about that issue. So the book catches you and holds you into that thought for a longer period of time than you would otherwise, because you just flip that thought and go and live your life, daily life, and you don't really think about those uncomfortable things anymore. Yeah, just maybe just as a wrap up for this part, I would like to to ask you kind of your overall knowledge of so much literature, Pakistani literature, South Asian post-colonial writing in general. Have you found maybe interesting takeaways from that that translate directly into your day-to-day actions as a Pakistani 
member of the diaspora, for instance, you can call it, or member of the Pakistani community here, uh, are there direct translations that you can find that you can implement into your lifestyle to almost enrich it or just influences that come up from reading something like that? Have you had time to reflect and observe on on that? I don't know if that's a clearly thought out yeah, question. Yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, I, I have two you know answers for that. First is when Pakistanis first come to the West, whether it's as student, an immigrant or whatever stage in their lives, there's a sense of insecurity and there's a sense of I'm not good enough. And I think that because I've been in this field for a long, long time now, obviously it's going to affect me. So I want to say that to your listeners is don't ever think you're not good enough. It, there's there's a lot of ability and capacity to do stuff for Pakistanis. And they, they should remember that if they've come here as students, they've already done so much with so few resources in Pakistan, for example. No funding, no grants no grand libraries, no access to a library like this, even though we have the HEC library, it never was quite like this where everything was at your fingertips and you could get. If we had all of what they have with their money here, if we had that in Pakistan, those students and those people would have done so much. But it's the lack of resources and opportunity, even without that, for students to come here and then do so well should tell them that they, they should never feel as if they're not good enough. So, so one thing is always like own up to your identity and know the capacity that you have for, you know, reaching the top in, in any field. And the second answer is very different. The second answer is me as a mother, as an older person than maybe your listeners who are young students, um, is when I came here, my daughter was 12 at a very formative age. And when she came, came here, she, for a lot many years because she wanted to be accepted in her school as like, you know, with her white friends that she would deny her identity. She wouldn't say she was Pakistani. She felt very uncomfortable. She didn't want to talk about Ramadan or Eid. She didn't, she wanted to hide all that. And part of how this plays out in my life is how I, what I can do to translate to her the importance of her identity. So as a teacher, I can do it well enough or I can write research papers on it or you know write books on it but it's way more difficult when it's in your home and you are teaching that to your child because a child is not willing to listen because they have to go out in the world and go to school and face somebody calling them you know or whatever and you also have to understand the pressures that they feel in wanting to fit in so that's a that's a more difficult and more personal thing to do to try and inculcate in your child an understanding of this without forcing them to do stuff because a lot of immigrants here, a lot of parents of the diaspora, they force their kids to either, you know, you have to wear the hijab or you cannot do this or you cannot do that. We, but forcing is not the way. We have to make them understand. And it's not easy to make them understand. So that part of my practical life is way more challenging than teaching students or writing books about it. And I'm still navigating that after 10 years. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Amazing. That's very concrete and also very wise and conceptual at the same time so i feel like we've taken a lot from that uh, i certainly have um and i feel like that's such a great place to wrap this part so thank you so much dr sadhav for for joining me i i learned so much from your from your views and from the work that you're doing as well it was very much appreciated that you could uh join us today and share that and i hope it was a good discussion uh yeah, for our listeners you. for you as well it was a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much uh, and hope to keep in touch soon. Thank you, everyone, uh, and uh, see you in the next one, inshallah. Take care. Khudafis.